It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia. A quick friendly reminder, it's dangerous to use cruise control in inclement weather. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. Pat. And I'm Chris. You may remember Pat from a variety of our episodes, including Broken Blossoms, Bride of Frankenstein, Michael Hahn, and The Third Man. Chris also has been on quite a few episodes, including Spaceballs, Halloween, and the entire first season of The Mandalorian. Pat and Chris conveniently continue to like movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In round one, all questions will be worth one point, and in round two, all questions will be worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we followed up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Tom, tell us about today's movie. Today, we're starting our Halloween block by going back to 1973 in Spain, towards the end of Franco's dictatorship. Victor Erices releases The Spirit of the Beehive alongside Habla Mudita, La Otra Imagen, La Chica del Molino Rojo, and Iana y los Lobos. Our film follows the uh, early era of, of Franco. This is in 1940. It starts, it takes place in Spain, just as the Civil War has ended. We meet a family, uh, two daughters, Anna and Isabel, um, who towards the beginning of the film see uh, a production of James Wales's Frankenstein. Um, uh, we see Isabel become really interested in Frankenstein's monster. She imagines this as a comforting spirit. And we see her and her sister playing in this Castilian countryside while their parents, their father a beekeeper and their mother who's having an affair with an unseen and unnamed man carry on in the wake of the catastrophe of the Civil War. Nick, if you had one word to describe the spirit of the beehive, what would it be? Okay. Pat? Artsy. Chris? I'm definitely gonna go with struggle. And I will say fantasy. It's time for question one. What is the first line of the film? This is spoken. What is the first spoken line of the film? I'm going to lock in. Locked in? Yeah, I'm going to lock in with very trepidatious. So Chris's answer is very trepidatious. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even think that's good English, so we're just going to go with it. <laughs> with trepidation. <laughs> <laughs> so... Chris, you locked in last. What do you have? I have no idea. I'm going to guess it was something where the guys were getting off the truck with the movie and I'm there telling the kids to get out of the way or get out, get away from behind the truck. That's just, that's a purely guess. I know that's like one of the first scenes, but I can't tell you for sure that's the first line. Okay. Who locked in second, Nick or Pat? That was me. Yeah. I, some reason I think there's something with the beehive before that, but I can't remember um uh, yeah i thought it was the movie scene too and i think is i was gonna go with like the kids 
running after the truck and they sang like the movie is here the movie is here or something like that but i don't remember all right and nick what do you have mine is in the same vein as pat's was like the movie is here movies coming something to that degree of the kids saying that the movie's coming to the town and the points go to nick and pat very good Woo-hoo. yes and so bring up this question to talk about maybe the obvious but um the film in the film and the use of the film in the film we have frankenstein coming to this small village um and it has this kind of profound effect on at least one little girl and talk about you know what that movie is doing in this film and what purpose does it serve yeah i mean as, as you said, <laughs> I, i'm i'm sure there was a lot a lot of the movie is just i'm like i'm sure there is a language here and i don't just mean spanish <laughs> like i'm sure there is a language here that people are speaking in in terms of like the symbols and the imagery and all this kind of stuff and i'm like i'm not picking up on 75 percent of it <laughs> so you, you know and and again i don't know maybe this is a topic for a later point but I, I get why they were doing it that way it's not totally just for the kind of artsy fartsy thing um which is what i said is the artsy fartsy i don't think it's 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 not totally that sort of pretentious kind of thing i think they're doing it for a very specific reason but i wasn't totally sure again it was sort of like guesses as to what it might have been and and my assumption was it was something with sort of modernity coming to this small town and sort of the the shock of of sort of modernity and and you know with the direct parallel to something like franco's regime beginning here that that there's some sort of uh, you know the Franco's regime is kind of coming over this small town and will eventually kind of rule Spain and and the idea of sort of this this sort of sort of imported monster film sort of having a hold over the girl in some way or another but you know and, and I got there was obviously some parallel that I was supposed to get to what the father was doing with his bees in terms of science um and sort of some parallel because they show him listening to the movie um but I wasn't really all that sure <laughs> um, as to exactly what it was doing. That was my guess. That was sort of my assumption as to what I was supposed to get, but it, it could be, it could be radically incorrect as far as I know. Yeah. I, I don't have, I'm, I, I don't have a definitive answer either. I mean, they definitely did some parallels with, you know, when she has her little hallucination at the end of the movie, which I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, that is exactly like the scene that you see. I really thought, what I, I guess what I want to talk about, I really thought that it was a really cool idea to use the opening of Frankenstein, which is the guy coming out from behind the curtain and talking about how you're about to see something horrific. And uh, although this isn't really a horrific movie in the terms of a horror movie, I feel like what we know that sort of the people during the you know, that regime kind of went through maybe that he w- it was almost like saying like, yeah, you were, this is the, from Frankenstein, but this also could be used to like, think about how what's coming or how this kind of unfolds in the movie. Cause like what the little girl goes through, I guess could be traumatic. I guess like she had hopes to find the monster hopes to find the spirit and then ends up that it, it ends up being a man. And then they, that guy gets killed like that's So it seemed like a little bit like it was, we're going to show you something horrific from the point of view of a seven-year-old. I thought that was an interesting little tidbit to throw that that specific piece of the movie in there. And also that they don't show why they didn't they don't show the monster kill the girl. And I guess that might have been something maybe back then it didn't have it. I don't know what the censorship was back then, but that they 
like in in the scene where they show you where he's by the water you see frankenstein throw the girl into the water i believe in the americanized version uh i don't know they didn't show it there in this movie for sure i'm not sure if that was something that was on purpose or not well they do do it because they mention it later uh anna asks isabel why did he kill her right and she's like nobody's dead it's a movie so it had to be it had to happen for her to prompt that question I think they showed her being carried, like her dead body being carried. Yeah, they didn't actually show they the saw the arm. Yeah, I don't think they they don't yeah, show I, like in in the original. Oh, all right, I got to in Frankenstein. They show you like a throw the flower, throw the flower. Now throw the girl because I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like the monster doesn't understand. They don't. I don't think yeah. they show the throw the girl like they mm-hmm. like they do in the movie. They don't. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely skipped through that. And again, maybe the audience saw it. We just didn't see yeah, it. Yeah, I know we didn't see it. But, but they know. sure as heck talk, talked about it. They did it. talk about it, yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of read... It's interesting, Pat, you should say, like, the coming of modernity, um, because it's... it. I do think the movie's that, but I also think it's, it's a comfort. And obviously, this goes into the last scene where, like, the monster actually becomes a sort of source of comfort. Um, but it's interesting because I, I think like no one would think of Franco's regime, even though it's modern relative, you know, it's modern in 1940, it's brand new. It's also like highly traditionalist. That's kind of his stance. And so you have this kind of like modern thing come in and it, it ends up being, I mean, if we want to talk about what the spirit is, it, you know, if it's the monster, if it's Frankenstein, it's something coming from far away that's this product of modern technology that aids in this, you know, fantasy of escape for this girl. Um, But I guess I saw it, and I mean, again, maybe I'm wrong on this point, but I guess what I saw it as is that I didn't think that the spirit of the beehive was something you were supposed to like, (laughs) That, that, that he even, you know, that he says very specifically, the father says, like, people look at the, beehive and they're horrified Mm. by it that they find it like terrifying to see all these bees kind of going about their business and doing you know just sort of like working and and i assumed that that was supposed to be and i say modern because that is sort of the modern fascist state Mm -hmm. is this idea of you know bees working together in a hive you know or just sort of everybody kind of going along with sort of the greater good and that that's that is the spirit of the beehive and so and so she sees Frankenstein as this, the Frankenstein monster is this sort of like comforting spirit, but it's not (laughs) like, it's like that. That's Mm -hmm. what I thought it was supposed to be was that she's interpreting it as a positive thing where, you know, which, which maybe a child would have seen this as a positive thing, but the reality is this is, this will not be, and Mm -hmm. this is not going to be. And that, that's what I thought it was doing. Yeah. I, I kind of read the spirit as so the beehive seemed to clearly be the metaphor for the fascist state right because he like when the the in the voiceover um uh fernando right i think is his name um it's the same actors the same name as the actor but uh, uh anyway he talks about like um here are the workers the workers are um doing everything that the, you know that they're forced to work they're forced to do everything that's asked of them their needs are not even considered and so it's like what you're saying it's it is this kind of you know um it, it's this fascist everybody's working together you know the the bundle is tied kind of common good type thing um but I, I just saw like the monster itself especially considering that it comes to her 
at a time when the Republican that she was helping is, is murdered, um, that it just seemed like he was a comfort to her, this spirit, this something that's outside of, of the grid, uh, you know, of, of the honeycomb system is there to comfort her. I don't know, like you saw him as coming in, like, it's like a beautiful thing that she's misinterpreting. That's what I thought yeah. it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, as, as I say, like, uh, as I said, I feel like there was a language there that I, that I could radically misinterpret because I just don't, I don't have, I don't have quite the right key to know it. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody told me like, oh, no, 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 that's not at all what they were doing with it. That's just what I mm-hmm. thought was going on was that she was misinterpreting it. Mm-hmm. That that is not what the Frankenstein monster is. Mm-hmm. That is not what, you know, these, the, the sort of the symbolism being directly to Franco's regime, like that is not what Franco's regime is. That is, you know, that, that, that's sort of the thing is that she's finding comfort in a thing that, that actually is going to end up being to be murdering people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I thought it was doing. Mm-hmm. I actually have a question that maybe you guys could help with uh, the monster. When you see the monster in the scene with the girl at the, at the lake towards the end, was that the dad? Was that the actor that portrayed the dad? Mm, I don't think so. I think that's no. the, really. I, I thought, thought it was. was actually. Oh, I, I it looked a little too, bit like I, it was. I think it's the actor who portrays the the Republican. I think mm, it's neither. I really thought it was the. He looked like the father. No, uh, I, I, had this, I thought it was the. I thought it was the one who was killed. No, so it um it, it's neither. It's uh, oh. Jose Villasante, um, is the monster. Estanza Gonzalez is the guard. Um, and uh, Fernando Gomez was uh, was Fernando. Yeah, Bob. that's funny though, Chris. I yeah. I thought he did look similar too when I saw. I was, I was I, maybe I was trying to pull something out of this, like an analogy or a metaphor that I that I thought like like she sees the she sees the the guard the guard that gets killed. She realizes that it was but her father not that her father pulled the trigger, but that it was something that happened with her father that caused that guy to die. And then she sees her dad as the monster at that point. But if it's not the dad playing the monster, then it's obviously that I'm wrong in that assumption. I was trying to do something there too. Yeah. But it I was I kind of thought something similar, but the dad didn't cause the guy to die. The dad just got the watch and the yeah, coat back. They just the knew end. it was a, you know, that he was somehow they knew associated. It was his watch yeah, and yeah, coat. yeah. It's time for question two. What is the one word spoken between Anna? and the Republican Guard in Spanish, please. I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. You you, you do it in English. (laughs) I don't know what it is in Spanish. Locked in. I'm gonna say locked in. Might as well lock in, I don't, yeah, I'll lock in. So Pat, what do you have? Yeah, well, I feel like the others, the others sort of rang in pretty quickly, so they, they might know the answer here. I can't. I can picture, but I just can't remember it. Um, it it's um, Porque. All right, uh, Chris, you rang in second. Uh, I think it's when isn't she handing over the apple to him, and does it? Does she say here? Okay. And Nick, what do you have? So I remember the scene, and what I locked in was, "Here's some fruit." All right. So one. So the question did say one word, Nick. <laughs> well, here. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> and it was with the fruit. <laughs> so, so considering all of that, yes, the word was here or whatever here right. is in Spanish. All right. 
Okay, so I brought this scene up because, of, you know, this obviously is a, a pivotal scene. And I, you know, I don't think we could talk really about the monster or its meaning without talking about what happens with the, with the Republican guard. Um, so, you know, just to recap, the, the guy goes and hides out in Anna and Isabel's favorite play space. Um, he's on the run from Franco's troops and he's killed. Uh, even though Anna meets him and kind of helps him out. So what do we think of that scene in conversation with the rest of the film, especially the end of the film? Before we go into all that, do you have this understanding of the historical context from this specific movie, or did you just know that going into it? You have a lot more background knowledge on this than I do. Well, it's interesting about the movie, and Pat, you've alluded to this, is that it like got past the censors. So Franco... Franco retires in 75. This movie comes out in 73. Um, and, you know, basically it was like really unexpected it should get past the censors because it had the, you know, it was an anti-Franco movie. But the way to do that is make a movie that's so slow, the censors don't think anybody will actually see it, which apparently was one of the reasons why they let it go. Um, well, it's also, I just assumed, as I said, like, and this is why I said, I, I don't consider it truly pretentious because the reason I think it also gets by is I don't think any, I have to sense it, but I didn't have a clue what was going on because I don't have I a clue know how, what was going yeah, on. Yeah, like I had no idea of all this other context. I, I, I think- Followed this, it as a very slow movie. <laughs> yeah, I think the scene with the, the, the Republican getting killed was not, they knew what was going on and they did not like it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they knew what was going on. And this is, that was sort of the moment where I was, you know, again, I was like, okay, well, this isn't just truly symbolist pretension because they are getting a movie across. I thought it was 1970, but whatever. They're still getting a, they're still getting a film across during the Franco regime that is even in any way addressing in a sympathetic way, a Republican character this is that's why they're doing all this stuff and again i got the the anti-fascism with the spirit of the beehive and this kind of stuff so it's like okay the fact that they're doing any of this even in 1970 or apparently 1973 that's why they're doing this because i just assumed it was like well that's the only way they can get it past the censors is to be as as ridiculously as obscure as they could mm -hmm. and assume that somebody would get it which is why i also say like i think about the 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 sort of the sort of the language background, the cultural background to pick up on some of these symbols that I think might have been a little more obvious to, to a contemporary Spanish audience in 1973, having lived through the Franco regime. So I assume some of that will be a little more clear, but it, it is, it's, it's wildly obscure at points. Mm -hmm. That's why I brought this up because you guys have all this like real world historical knowledge that I didn't really have going into this film, like just the top of mind. Again, I thought I was going to be watching a horror film for Halloween. So I really had no idea what the heck I was getting into here, but I do see some of those themes and trends, but a lot of your analysis seems to be drawing on these real world events that I was not privy to, or at least aware of to great detail of how they were linked to this film. Now it all makes sense but I didn't have that when I was watching this from the film content itself. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting experience in that way, watching how they maneuvered past the, the censors. Um, well, it raises an interesting question because if <laughs> does the movie actually stand by itself if you mm -hmm. don't have th that sort of like, and, and that I guess is, I think that's a legitimate criticism. Does the movie actually work as a standalone piece like it can be mm -hmm. you know like there there can be 
pieces of of sort of i mean this isn't satire but there, there can be pieces of 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 sort of things that deal with a specific point in time like say animal farm or something like that which which more or less has one-to-one -one parallels but it's sort of it can you can continue to watch it past that does this have that where this is this is this is tied to a specific period and place if you don't know anything about that period and place does the film still work it's an interesting question i would say no because i just thought it was a very slow film <laughs> what did you did chris did you know were you up on your fascism <laughs> i i had a, i had a very 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 elementary idea of like when i when i read in the imdb post like i said before that it was in the like 1940s spain i knew that there was a time of upheaval mm -hmm. uh what what do i know specifics yeah Absolutely me too not. i've like heard the, i've heard the name franco yeah. but, but other than that like i really don't know what those people went through whether it was good bad or indifferent i really have no idea i will say i will give one credit to the movie the movie looks gorgeous uh i think they the yes. cinematography is fantastic so if we're going to try to like give it some points for why it's got merit on its own without any historical context i would say that it looks great like i feel like every shot was natural light and when they're doing all of the stuff indoors, like with the yellow panes of glass, the beehive I, looking paint. Yeah, I thought that <laughs> looked fantastic. Uh, so purely outside, keeping history out of it, keeping any like kind of preconceived notions out of it, it looked good. It was incredibly slow, but it looked good. Yeah, it did. You're right. And then I didn't even think about all that natural light. There was a ton of natural light in that movie. I just remember specifically the train shot, like yeah. the, the two girls are got their ears down to the train. And then there's this one shot where she stands in the middle of the tracks. And I don't I don't think the camera moves, but you get this kind of like telescope effect as it's going down the train tracks before you see the train kind of come around the corner. Uh, I really thought that was a, a really cool, even if it was just a still shot. And then there was the other shots where the kids are coming over the hill and you can see the farmhouse way off in the distance. And they do that shot a couple times and you see all these planes that are there. I thought that was very picturesque, almost like almost like a painting, the way that they were shot with that. Yeah, and a lot of ruins too. The, mm -hmm. Yeah, the kind of the, the beautiful ruins. Yeah, the cinematography reminded me a little bit of a Wes Anderson film in that a lot of like like Wes Anderson does this a lot, where he kind of sets like a very static image, and then things kind of move within. It's usually it's often very parallel, and things kind of move within that very sort of static frame, and they're they're usually they have that kind of like was like diorama-esque feels to some of the shots where they just felt very sort of well-placed, perfectly balanced, well-lit, and then things kind of move within it that I thought was interesting. And I, and I do think is, is very visually appealing, yeah. And at the end of round one, we have Nick in the lead with two points and Pat and Chris on his tail with a point apiece. See you after the break. Spend your workday drunk playing golf, but can't find your flask or fit your shotgun into your golf bag? Now get the amazing Driver Shotgun, a driver that has a shotgun built into the club head just in case a bear or communist gets in the way of your game. Also, a pint of whiskey is located in the club's handle just in case you need some commie killing courage. That's Driver Flask. The manly choice. And we're back. I have a question for both Pat and Chris. 
It's a key question we ask all our guests. If you could watch the spirit of the beehive with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? I would watch this with Ernest Hemingway, I would say. I, think, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's got some experience with the situation. Um, yeah, he was, I think he was in Spain in 1940. He was, I'm sure, at some point. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or immediately before that, he was around, right around that period. But I, I think he would be an interesting figure to... Uh, I think I think he would also be for both for the historical reason, but I have a feeling he probably wouldn't like the movie. Um, I don't know. I'd be curious what he would think of the actual film. So I will go with Ernest Hemingway. Uh, I actually struggled with this question for a second until I realized that I would definitely do Mary Shelley. Uh, That way she could she could she a that's one of my favorite pieces of fiction ever, and b this is a situation where, you know, maybe she doesn't even know that the Frankenstein movie exists. And then she sees how it's used as a metaphor for other things in the future. So I thought that would be, that'd be an interesting thing to interesting person to have a meal with, as well as let them see that their creation has turned into something more. Mm. Oh, two good choices. Yeah. Yeah. I like those. Do you think that Ernest Hemingway and Mary Shelley would watch it together? God, would they like each other? No, they would not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know because Shelley was a pretty sort of early romantic, you know, figure. Mm-hmm. Well, Percy Bish was out of her husband was out of his mind. He was kind of he had that yeah, kind of that's what I mean. go was, that, oh okay yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's what I'm saying. But he was sort of that like kind of not quite Byronic figure, but sort of this like you know I feel like he he yeah was pretty out of his mind in terms of like what he was. He was an adventurous spirit, at least I think. Yeah, yeah. He there's a great story about him. So he was married before he he met Mary Godwin, and um, and he like divorced his wife. But then he wrote her a letter after he married Mary Shelley. It was like you can still live with us in the function of a sister, <laughs> which she politely declined. But that you know that was the type of guy. Oh, nice. So, yeah. And considering, I think Hemingway met his third wife during the Spanish Civil War, so... Yeah, I feel like maybe. Hemingway and he would have had a, a little bit in common. I think they would have got along fairly yeah. well, I yeah. think. I think Hemingway and Byron, though, would have been a fun... You know, send them both into Greece and watch them take it over. It's time for question three. What does Isabel use as lipstick? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, Pat, you locked in last. So, what do you got? She uses uh, blood from when the uh, the cat has clawed her, and she uses the blood. I actually have the same. The, when the cat caught her, she uses the blood. Definitely blood from when the cat bit her. All right, thank you, gentlemen. Everybody gets a point, or actually two, rather. Two, yeah. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Okay, so I brought this up because I want to talk about the the sisters and their relations to one another. I mean, when you're dealing with like a pseudo symbolic film or a movie about an error and you have two sisters who are um, actually played by sisters, but who are also as wildly different as these two characters are, um, what we make of them. And it was kind of interesting what people made of Isabel, the older and seemingly incredibly cruel sister. I mean, I'm the youngest of eight kids. She's not that cruel. (laughs) 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 That's nothing. That is. I thought we were going to start with the younger sibling. I actually thought in the earlier scenes that she was a boy. So then I realized promptly that they were sisters. Yeah. 
So. She actually grew up to be quite beautiful, the that actress. But um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, I, I think with, with Isabel too, there's something, I wouldn't have thought of it. I, I just didn't, th I think she, they were just normal sisters until the scene where she's strangling the cat. And that, that was kind of like, oh, this is a little, like the thing where she pretends to be dead and scare her sister, that's like a prank or whatnot. When you're like alone trying to kill a cat, there's, there's the I felt like she was almost like something. testing to see if she could do it. Like it was kind of like a test, which is also which is also a red flag. I think. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I, I I would oh, find a therapist so. for my child if that was happening. But um, I, I don't want to go to the obvious thing where it's like, here's the fascist instinct, and this other person is more the you know, the the softer or the republican instinct. Um, but I, I guess we could also use this to talk about the family more broadly. It is a very odd family dynamic that we're introduced to here yeah i i just to jump on your previous point i kind of thought that it was like the yin and yang it was like the she was a little bit to one side anna was a little bit to the other side and it was they were trying to show it uh, like a dichotomy and i think that it was the yes the the playing dead scene means literally nothing compared to the, the cat scene mm -hmm. and it just seemed so strange that it was kind of like out of the ordinary where it seemed like i think this was in the time that we were anna was going to visit the guard and giving him food and helping him and, and nursing this like wounded person back to health. Mm -hmm. And then the other uh, Isabella is the other girl's mm -hmm. name. She's literally hurting something that seems to be innocent. So it seemed like, it seemed like they were very different in that, in that stretch in that same, in that same place. And it seems like that's almost like they were thick as thieves together before. And like that moment was where they kind of diverged and went on their separate paths. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. If I might be completely, I like like Pat said before, I might be hundred percent completely off and out in left field and thinking of something that doesn't actually exist. But that's kind of where that's kind of how I interpreted it when I saw it. That like it was kind of like they were together and then they separated at that moment mm -hmm. of their lives, whatever whatever that was. This is going off the script, but I actually was looking into this. Um, Isabel played by Isabel <laughs> and Anna played by Anna. It seems that. Anna is still a working actress where Isabel has never done anything since uh, this period of the beehive. Yeah. So just an interesting dichotomy there. I guess people didn't like her trying to uh, strangle a cat. <laughs> yeah. Also, Anna grew up to be quite beautiful. So that, that helps when you're trying to be an actor. That can open up. <laughs> or, or anything, really. It's, it's a good quality yeah. to have. Uh, yeah. It's also interesting what you're saying, Chris, about them splitting because it the stuff about the the monster about it being fake and that he's a spirit you can call him whenever you like which really i i actually think is a is quite a comfort to anna and i, I think throughout the the film um you know that that it's interesting that this person who we'd later see doing something cruel is what is the person who gives to anna this kind of relief or the possibility of relief. She introduces her to the spirit. Now, if it's what you're saying, Pat, where the spirit is actually this kind of devastating thing that that uh, Anna is misinterpreting as kind of beautiful or comforting or helpful, then that all kind of makes sense, right? It's like, no, the spirit is is this this new, monster that's going to kind of burn everything to the ground. But I, I kind of still read it as the spirit is this sort of escape from 
rather than um, this kind of damnation. And I, I think it is interesting that Anna provides that, um, you know, as much as we see her diverging from, you know, being kind of a comforting sister later on. It's time for question four. What is the first piece of evidence Anna finds of the spirit? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, Nick, what do you have? I hope this isn't too vague. Clothes, something to do with his clothes. I can't remember what article of clothes, but it was clothes. I'm on the same vein. I thought it was a coat. It's his footprint. She puts his foot in her in uh, the oh. giant's footprint. And Pat has got it. Yep, yes. it is the footprint. And so with the last question... Ah, snuck ahead. You snuck ahead. And Pat has ended on four points and the lead. Five well, points? Five points, whatever. Five, five points. Yeah, five five points and the lead. Five. So I, I brought this up for the obvious reasons, talking about what, one of the reasons why this movie is famous is, is that ending. And we kind of touched on it already. Um, I'll kind of give you my reading. I think it is like this idea of this kind of new media that comes in that offers somebody a new way to see the world or um, to experience something transcendental. Uh, my, my kind of evidence for this is, uh, it's not great evidence, but if you look at Ferdinando's desk, the, the father's desk, do you remember the painting that's behind him? This is gonna... Yeah, I noticed. I was I was hoping you would ask. That. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was going to be a bonus. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So it's same. I assume it's same. Is it same? No, Mark? it's Jerome. It's, it's Jerome. Jerome it's... The translator. Oh, I just saw the lion, so I assumed it was. Same oh, Mark, it could have been, but uh, the lion. Lion anyway. is also Jerome. <laughs> okay, so yeah, it makes more sense. Yeah, yeah, that he's like you know, like the translator. He's the one who takes the the Greek Bible and makes it into, into Latin, you know? And so you have this kind of like this new quote unquote technology or whatever, this, this new thing that allows you to kind of experience the transcendental. It's this new um, way of accessing that. And I saw the movie as the, this kind of updated version of that, right? That the, the film was gonna be her way to access this and her way of dealing with eventually the kind of the trauma of the everyday, the trauma of actually being alive in the world and having to go, you know, go through a space that is already tragic and will continue to be tragic, right? This is the first full year of Franco and we see her just getting over the fact that this, you know, this person who she's shown care for has been, has been murdered and she doesn't understand why. So I do kind of disagree with you, Pat, in the sense that I think it's, I think it is a, a helpful spirit um, because I think it's this kind of this new media that helps extend that that fantasy to deal with the reality. I kind I kind of I don't I don't disagree with you because I have like I said I have no idea what the what the intentions were. But my takeaway from it was that it was kind of like the showing up of the monster in the in I guess a corporal form was her losing her innocence. Like the entire beginning of the movie, she's an innocent little girl. She's throwing rocks in wells. She's exploring ruined houses and she's doing doing things that all small children would do and, and enjoy doing. And then she has this experience with the soldier that kind of changes her perspective. 
and like when the monster when you see the monster for the first time you see her as a child looking into the into the the stillness of the pond and then the ripples start and then all of a sudden her face is replaced with the monster's face so she's realized that you know like almost like the age of innocence is gone and now she has been thrown into what will now become her reality for the rest of her life she will now be one of the bees in the beehive uh, and that's kind of the scary part of it mm -hmm. for her. And I, so I, I feel like the spirit started out for her as something that was comforting and then ends up that it ends up being like, that's the transition point. Like she, she now realizes why Frankenstein killed the girl or she realizes, you know, what, like that, that first question that she asks her sister, why did, why did they kill? Why did he kill the girl? Why did they kill him? I feel is answered in that moment in her eyes. Like, even though she doesn't say anything pretty much for the rest of the movie, I feel like she, her lip is trembling. And I feel like she is kind of like answering that question at that moment as she's face to face with the monster, whether it's her, you know, it's, it's all in her mind, of course. But I think that's kind of, that's how, what I took away from it. No, I was just gonna say, I like that read of it. I, I think that was an interesting uh, interpretation. I definitely didn't have the other layers that we were talking about earlier. And I really relied a lot on the Frankenstein references because I didn't have any of the other ones. And she was trying to figure out that answer to that question from the beginning. So I'm, I'm more inclined to lean in, in, in Chris's direction on this one. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm more, I'm more inclined to agree with Tom now. So we've, we've, mm -hmm. we've reached a stalemate here in that, and the main reason that I will that I will actually think that, and, and I know this isn't a particularly good reason, but I think it's an accurate reason if we're trying to go with what the actual interpretation is, is that, um, and I know this isn't a good reason, but it's literally, I think it is because somewhat the vanity of film, um, filmmakers love to make movies about filmmakers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just look at, uh, what was that? movie with the dancing the dancing in the the la where they had oh the, la la land yeah, yeah yeah la la <laughs> land. they love to make movies about mm -hmm. making movies and you know i agree once because my my originalism was like, why is saint mark behind him because i didn't i didn't buy that i didn't know why but i jerome makes more sense because i actually do agree that 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 actually does make sense as as sort of the the translator of sort of the transcendental that that film is the modern translator of the transcendental and, and, and i do actually think mark, you, too mark is but mark is a little different but but why mark yeah, i guess would, would have been my mark. argument mm -hmm. why mark and that was that was more my issue was why did they have him as opposed to anybody mm -hmm. else that was sort of my my confusion about that if if i don't you know my 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 knowledge of saint iconography is not is not that great so if it is mark that makes a lot or, or if it is jerome that makes a lot more sense and I, and i actually can buy the fact that they are trying to say that film that you know it is it literally is a like frankenstein brought comfort to her in the same way that our film will bring comfort to mm -hmm. the modern you know into to the modern age or something like that like i i can actually sort of by that mm -hmm. in that sense that you you know but yeah it's it is it ultimately just comes down to like yeah i i don't i can i can believe that and i mean literally i think i think actually arguing that based on the vanity of filmmakers that i think that's an terrible it's a terrible <laughs> argument but yeah. i do think it's yeah. legit um is that that's probably what they intended mm -hmm. But as I said, like whenever you do these sort 
super instance and soleil because it's sort of like unless you are just a person who just knows how that director's films work you can just wildly miss everything that's going on with those pieces and that's why i don't like them um and and this piece didn't quite do the same thing as as a sans soleil but i find them so <laughs> irritating to to watch because i just know there's things in these things and i know people are are out there you know sort of smiling at how clever mm -hmm. they are that they got these points and part of me just kind of wants to be like listen communicating poorly <laughs> and then smiling <laughs> smugly when someone misinterprets you is not is 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 not artistic <laughs> like it's just like mm -hmm. that's and i'm not saying specifically that's what this film is doing but it sort of feels mm -hmm. like that that there's people that are out there and i'm sure there probably are people out there right now who are who are listening to this podcast were like i know what that <laughs> meant it was the reference mm -hmm. to the, and it's sort of i'm like well yeah maybe you got it because you know these things but just you, you know and, <laughs> but the only thing that gives that i will give this film the leeway is because of the censorship that was going mm -hmm. on because I know why they had to use these sort of obscure references to get this past the censor. So I will, I will give it that leeway, but normally it irritates me to no end when filmmakers <laughs> do that because I'm like, just tell me what it is in, in, in normal <laughs> sense, telling me it in an obscure manner and acting clever. It just bothers me. So I guess that's my thing is I will, I will actually switch my allegiance to Tom, but we can agree with both sides. It's not two camps. Yeah, there is. No, there are. There yeah. are camps. War of roses all the time. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I mean, the, the media stuff is also the media transcendental stuff. I, I'm also kind of reading that into the movie. That's, I think you could get, this idea of the Frankenstein monster as both a a comfort and a thread. It's a comfort in the sense of it's it's you know something she can pray to, right, or talk to, as she says. But I think what what you're saying, Chris, about her now having to grow up is also true. There is a loss of innocence, right? There is you know there is something ugly and needing something to speak to, you know, as opposed to just wanting it because it's like fun and and childish. I sort of think it was her first exposure to the real world like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. That mm. She had something she cared about in this in this person. That person was taken from her unjustly mm. or however you want to say it, that they were murdered or killed or however you want to say it. And then she had to rationalize that. And she did it in the same frame that she was trying to use the the Frankenstein monster to as a, as a source of comfort. Now it's a source of like, oh, I, this is the, this is what I was thinking about when I went from a source of comfort to pain. And that was kind of that grow up moment for her. That's mm. that's as I found it. I I found it very intriguing. I find any movie intriguing that comes from the perspective of a child, mm -hmm. because it's so easy as now as a thirty a thirty something year old person myself to like look down upon it and look as if I know everything. But imagine if from the other direction, like when I was nine years old and had no clue what the world was like, like I when I was when I was a, a young tyke, you know the the presidential regime here in, in the United States was different and the politics of the day were so much different. And I had no, I had not a clue because I was innocent. I remember being upset when they interrupted with the 1992 election <laughs> results because they interrupted Full House and I was very upset that they interrupted that. God, I, I have not, I, the only Full House I've seen was the first episode of the reboot of it. 
Um, and I completely didn't understand what was happening. But anyway. Are you talking about Fuller House? Yeah. <laughs> there were there was so many inside jokes to Full House that it completely went over my head. I had no idea what was going on or why other people were laughing. It wasn't designed for you. I'll tell you that yeah. much. But anyway, that's probably not the <laughs> Yeah, my, my point was I didn't mean I I didn't mean to take away your point, Chris, but I was just saying that yeah, I, I think kids kids wildly miss uh, miss political <laughs> politics. I mean, I mean, but I mean, like that's what this movie has a little bit of political undertones based on what we're saying about it trying to go through censorship and stuff like that. So like this kid, this seven year old living in a place that's politically charged and all kinds of stuff is happening around her has no idea, and she's innocent. And then there becomes a time where she realizes that it's not all sunshines and rainbows and, and fields to run through, that there are real machinations happening around her, whether she likes it or not. And that's kind of what I see the, like I said, the shimmering of the face into the monster's face was kind of that for me. It's time for Movie Rent. I mean, I guess this is sort of like, why is the, why do they bother having the mother having an affair? Yeah, I don't. She What's wasn't really that, that critical to this movie, period. Yeah. No, I'm like, but but what was, and that's exactly it. Like, and uh, you know, any anytime I look at these things, I'm like, okay, what if you remove <laughs> that element? Like, does it affect the story? Does it? I don't think it does. It yeah, you wouldn't lose much at <laughs> yeah. all. That's why there was no mother questions here because I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't think it is there. Yeah. And I'm like, is it is it like there's another betrayal going on? I'm so, and, then, and again, this is sort of like the only like, is this why like the the all these figures take on dual meanings? Like the monster could be seen as a comfort or it could be considered a, a thing that brings pain. And, you know, in the same way that a and I don't know, I think they're just I think they're just trying to give you a snapshot of what her life is like. She's very much alone. Like dad is very much like a scientific loner poet. Like even when they're at, even when they're at the breakfast table, they're never, none of the camera shots show them together. It's a, it's a solo of the, it's a solo of dad sitting at the head of the table. It's a solo of Anna on one side. It's a solo of Isabel on the other. They're never a family. Oh, see, that's wonderful. So, see, that's good. I like that. I feel like, I feel like putting, even, even though that the, the mother character is so underwhelmingly developed, I think just the fact that you realize that she too is kind of like, in her own little bubble, like because she's thinking about something that is not Anna and Isabella, it gives you a reason why Anna and Isabella kind of go off and go on their little adventures together because they're trying to fill voids of their own. You know, dad is definitely, you know, the, the even the, the caretaker tells the dad, why don't you come in and have a real meal once in a while instead of floating up in the clouds? Like, I feel like that, that seemed like a throwaway line at the time, but it very much painted the picture of what this family was like. And watching the mom write the letter that I couldn't read because it was in Spanish, but watching the mom write the letter and not be with her daughters painted a picture of this is a life that these kids are going through. That's that. So, yes, was it necessary? No. But does it add something? It did add something for me, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. It's just the family's not functioning. <laughs> All of what Chris just said. And also, I know the real reason. They were just throwing something else to make the movie even slower to really fool those censors, okay? So that this movie could be uh, released. So they're like, they're not going to get this. <laughs> I, I do like the idea of boring censors in order to get past them. <laughs> 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 it seems like that seems like uh, like a brilliant strategy. It also allows you to get revenge on them as you do it. Yeah, I mean, when when I was watching it, the the thing was, this, I was like, like if they end up dying like Anna Karenina style, and they just put their heads on a train or something like that, <laughs> I was like, I'm not. I'm, this is just like, and and I kind of, and I mean, I don't know. Maybe that was what they were going for. There was sort of a 
a frequent sense of sort of dread that at any moment something could go horribly, horribly wrong. You know, even when they were looking at the train and they had their heads on the train, like I thought it was going to be a, a case of sort of chicken, which I think was, was sort of maybe the point. Um, but, you know, there, there was a lot of, there was a lot of foreshadowing of disaster that never quite happened. The, the train kind of, because the, the train, the way the train shot is framed, it's the same frame used when the Republican jumps off of it. No, I got that. And I, and I got, I got that sort of foreshadowing, but there was just, you know, there was just a frequent foreshadowing of dread that never quite happened. Mm -hmm. Like I thought that it was going to be, you know, again, there were, there were frequent moments where I was like, oh, there's some sort of tragic thing is mm -hmm. going oh. to happen here. And it never quite, there's never any truly, you know, even again, even when it was like, oh, Isabel is, is seriously hurt and she's lying on the ground. Mm -hmm. And it was like, maybe something happened. And again, this was just a foreshadowing of her, you know, being attacked. And mm -hmm. it wasn't, it was just her playing games with her sister. Or when there, you know, there was a foreshadowing when the Republican got off and I thought, oh, maybe she'll get shot with the Republican. Or what I really thought the big thing was going to be is when they found the coat and the watch on, on the Republican, that they would execute the father because they were like, you must have helped, you must have provided aid to this man mm -hmm. because he has your coat and your watch. That was what I thought they were going for, but it never quite, there was always this sense of sort of total dread that like tragedy and maybe this again was sort of the point was that there's always this sense that that abs that the sort of damocles is hanging over them that some point something truly horrible and horrific is going to happen to this family but i mean bluntly put at the end of the movie they're exactly the same as they were at the beginning mm -hmm. what has changed nothing I said, yeah it is at the end they nothing their circumstances haven't changed at all i guess the idea is that like Anna has whatever grown up or or something like that, um, you know. Which you're thinking like <laughs> it's kind of kind of like an Uncle Vanya thing. Like nothing, this circumstantially nothing has changed at the end of Uncle Vanya either. Um, you know, it's just nobody will ever be the same again because the, you know they've gone through this kind of um, this this like tragic ennui so to speak which this movie also has there's like there is yeah, a kind of and, sense and i guess that was that was ultimately my point is i thought it was going to go with this melodramatic and i get this is the film's credit i thought okay. it was going to go with a total melodramatic like the 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 father gets that's hung in the town square mm. for what he did with the republican or mm. she gets shot up with the other guy like i thought there was going to be some big dramatic ending but it doesn't and materially speaking, and there is, the, but there is this constant sense of dread mm -hmm. that something really bad could happen to these people at any single moment. And I, and I guess that was why I, I sort of interpreted the Frankenstein monster as being a negative because, you know, you've, you've sort of courted this in this sort of spirit. And I mean, maybe this is the point you've sort of courted this spirit which maybe it brings comfort at this immediate moment, which I'm sure Franco did in the immediate moment compared to what the alternatives were mm -hmm. um, in 1940. But you've sort of, you've introduced this element that could at any single moment totally blow up on you and completely, and completely destroy everything you are. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what I thought the film was going to do was introduce this melodrama and it never did. Mm -hmm. And so there still seems to be this sense that this film, that these, that, the, you know, the film's ended, but this family could at any moment still blow up and completely destroy itself mm -hmm. and, 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 or the outside force completely destroy this family. Yeah. Yeah. The, the world is uh, like kind of randomly chaotic, right? It, it could, 
like if something could come out and kill them at any time. I guess not chaotic. That's the wrong word. It you know the it could organize against them at any time. Tom, I can't end this episode without asking you, why did you select this film for a Halloween theme? I'm just curious. Oh, the the coming of the monster because I did Bride uh, last last Halloween, which okay you were on. Um, you know, back in the that was a great selection. Thanks. <laughs> uh, and I thought this would be like kind of a use of the kind of Frankenstein thing in a different context. So I thought that would be, that be a fun pairing kind of, um, maybe it's not. But <laughs> no, you know, it was just interesting. I really thought this was going to be a completely different film. I did not look at it ahead of time. I just watched it and I thought I was going to have more of a horror vibe going on here. I was expecting something to happen, just like Pat was saying, like some kind of consequences or or maybe there really was some kind of, you know, a supernatural presence. Um, I guess there's a question mark there. Uh, but yeah, no, it was interesting. But I just wanted to get your thought on that before we wrap things up, just because I thought it was an interesting pick for uh, to start off our Halloween theme. I'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week who snagged it away from my victory right at the last second. Pat, <laughs> you got me fair and square. The footprint. Ah, mm-hmm. Footprint. It always gets you. I know. I know. In addition to our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Do you think the spirit was a positive or negative presence and why? Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at Talking Studios. Have additional thoughts? Email us at TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com or give us a call at 201-467-8679 for a chance to be featured on one of our future From the Listeners episodes. Thanks again, Pat and Chris, for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it, as always. Yeah, just saying that because you won. I know. I know how it is. Oh, oh, there's no doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'd be I'd be much less smug. (laughs) Yes, thanks again, guys. It's always fun to come on and do these. I really enjoy it. And this was definitely a movie I was never gonna watch otherwise. So thank you for that as well. You got you're (laughs) welcome. (laughs) Yes, I would not have I would not have watched this. All right, you can find me at Thomas Lehman 15 on Twitter. The the B-sides are coming back. Sorry there's been a delay. It's but it's called living. Um but I I will I will jump on those very shortly. I have a few planned. Nice. I can also be found on Twitter at the nicknamed. Join us next time when we discuss my recommendation from 2017, Get Out. Stay tuned for our first impressions of this film. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, so this is my first viewing of this movie. I, it was so popular, I more or less avoided it due to, due to that. Um, but the consequence of that is I knew everything that was going to happen. Um, and I've actually been to, I went to, I knew like literally the lines um, <laughs> that reveal like th- that the, the, that Allison, uh, Allison Williams's character is, is also a villain, you know, so I, I knew the whole thing. Um, I've actually been to a, an academic conference in which one of the panels was on this movie. 
But anyway, so yeah, I, I like I've seen a bunch of the earlier Bloomhouse pictures, uh, the, the production company that made this. And it's it's strange, despite this movie's reputation, it actually really adheres to this production company's house style very much like the, a small horror movie with a few people that's located in a specific place so that that's you know like you like a one set type thing or a mostly one set type of thing and so for all of the kind of social commentary wrapped in the film it, it actually is also seeming to draw from this kind of um th this production company's way of doing things which seems to be pretty uh, pretty cost conscious this is my second watch of this film and the reason i recommended it was because i was really looking forward to watching it again my first watch was right after it came out but i know i saw it at home so it must have been when it was released for home viewing i didn't actually have everything spoiled like tom did so i was watching this clean and fresh and I'm always concerned when something has a lot of hype. And what I would say is I did thoroughly enjoy this film. I thought it, it brought a new perspective to the horror genre. And I liked the way it unfolded as we learned a little bit more about this mystery. On the second watch, I was specifically focused on does it actually hold up? And I believe it actually does hold up if you look at some of the events that occurred along the way. And they did a pretty good job of keeping the movie pretty tight with not a lot of uh, loose ends. His later work, uh, Jordan Peele, this was his first um, director, writer movie, Us, while I think it may have actually been a better horror film, definitely falls apart once they get into the logic of the underlying premise. I... I definitely enjoyed it as well. I think I was sort of in a similar camp as Tom where I was like, I felt like I knew everything about the movie before watching it, but I feel like mm -hmm. it didn't really ruin it for me. Like it was very good. Um, it really like made you look at the details, which honestly were really well done. It felt really open, close, so to speak. I really liked um, all those features with it. And I, I do think it aged well. Um, Granted, it's not, it's, I guess it was four not years old. Yeah, old. I guess yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was like two years old. Like, oh, no, it's it's, it's old. just graduating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't seen uh, his latest film, Us. It also looks very good. But I think it's it's funny because Get Get Out is like, it's a horror movie, but it's not really a horror movie until like, the second half of the uh, actual film. Like the first half, I actually was just taking my time. I was actually doing stuff. And then when things kind of hit the wall, so to speak, then I was like, all right, I can sit down and watch this. And it was actually made a really nice and easy watch. Like it, it was a lot easier to watch than I thought it would be. So this was my second viewing. Um, I think I had seen it uh, shortly, not, not too long after it came out and it was at home. I knew, I knew the basic premise, but I didn't know specifically who was involved. So I didn't know going in uh, necessarily that the girlfriends was that involved. Um, so, uh, so there were some surprises, you know, when, when I had watched it the first time and I liked it. I normally am not too crazy about the horror genre. I think there's, you know, I, I try to watch the classics, um, or at least some of the classics, uh, but, um, you know, and, you know, a lot of them are good. 
but it's not something I normally look for. And so, yeah, so I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, and I think it held up on, on a second viewing. There were a few things that I paid more attention to uh, because it wasn't, you know, you, you I wasn't just kind of sitting there in suspense, you know, waiting to see, you know, who, who dies and who makes it out. 